You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, Saturday's 3CR Breakfast Show. And today, we're going to have a word with uh, the Yarra Resident Collective to find out what's going on, rumblings. We've been uh, following this story about uh, the uh, new council and the uh, residents pushing back against undemocratic processes that the council has been putting in to try and reduce the uh, interaction with its uh, elected, its uh, public, I guess, the uh, residents. Um, anyway, it, it broke through into the mainstream media last week and um, I did a follow-up, or the week before, and I did a follow-up with Adam Prominenti from the uh, Yarra Resident Collective to get a, a closer look at what's going on there. Uh, we're going to hear from Jay from the Anti-Poverty Centre who's got a particular view on the job summit that's just been completed in Canberra. Uh, this is the week that was and we're going to uh, hear a report about the International Overdose Awareness Day which was held on the 31st of August. Uh, but before we do... There's a few news items that might have uh, escaped your attention, which I thought might be worth your while considering. There was an amazing thing happened uh, on the 17th of uh, August. The Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions, New South Wales, announced on the 10th of August that it was applying to the New South Wales Supreme Court to have a charge laid against a correction services New South Wales officer who shot a Wirundjeri man in the back, upgraded from manslaughter to murder. To charge a prison guard with the murder of a First Nations detainee is unprecedented in Australia, which is amazing in itself. Indeed, charging the prison guard with manslaughter in relation to the death in February last year was already a first in itself. The unidentified prison officer shot a 43-year-old Dwayne Johnson three times on 15th of March 2019 as he handcuffed and shackled um, Remandi ran from him and a colleague in an attempt to escape out the front of Lismore Base Hospital. The third shot <coughs> excuse me, hit Johnson in the back and proved fatal. 
As per death in custody protocol, a coronial inquiry into the killing followed and in another groundbreaking move, the New South Wales State Coroner Teresa O'Sullivan called a halt to the inquest midway in October 2020 and referred the matter to the DPP to consider whether criminal charges should be laid. In response to the recent development, the union representing prison officers, the Public Service Association, announced more than 5,000 guards would would be holding a 24-hour strike. Um, However, First Nations death and custody reform advocates have praised the move to upgrade the charges as a positive step in seeing officers accountable for their deadly actions. Incredible. And also another positive coming out of South Australia, the Supreme Court overturns miners' authorisation to drill at Lake Torrens. This is a really fascinating piece of information. Mining company Argonaut Resources is exploring its options after a Supreme Court decision to overturn its authorisation for mineral exploration on Lake Torrens in South Australia's north. Uh, The court found that the company's cultural protection measures were not sufficient under the Aboriginal Heritage Act. The government says it is awaiting legal advice on the implications of the judgment. Both brands of uh, political... uh, parties in South Australia had a hand in allowing the drilling, it might be added. The Aboriginal corporation that brought the action says it will turn its attention to blocking the planned Akimba nuclear waste facility. The company says the decision will jeopardise multiple projects across the state, including the new women's and children's hospital. The company's subsidy, subsidiary, Kilare Proprietary Limited, holds two exploration licences in the region and is targeting iron oxide copper gold deposits, which will have led to the drilling of more than 1,000 holes and the establishment of a campsite at the state's second largest lake. Uh, the authorisation has now been squashed in a judgment handed down by Chief Justice Chris Caracas, effectively halting all prospective mining activities at the lake. Uh, Under Section 20, discovery of Aboriginal sites, objects or remains must be reported as soon as practicable to the Minister. Uh, Anyway, this is a a pretty extraordinary development, I'll have to say. Um, It... uh, the um, it affects uh, quite a number of um, Aboriginal um, clan groups uh, who see this as a, a sacred site. Um, anyway, it, that is something to be watched because it's a, a turn up for the books. Another thing that was interesting, which also hit the mainstream media, was that the, um, there is now a class action uh, against the Victorian police in relation to using uh, pepper spray against um, demonstrators at the IMAC uh, demonstration last year. And having been there, I missed the the incredibly violent day, but the uh, attitude on the other days was uh, pretty extraordinary. Um, Anyway, the Australian First Class action by um, Phil Fye, 
Finney MacDonald and the Police Accountability Project in a Melbourne Community Legal alleges that use of capsicum spray on protesters is unlawful when used as a coercive tool or where there is no immediate or proportionate threat to police officers or the public. And having been at some of these events, I'll have to say that's news to me as a, a person on the other side of the police. But we'll see what the uh, action does. Um, MELS, which is the Melbourne Activist Legal Support, um, welcomes the class action against Victoria Police, use of capsicum spray and excessive force against the protesters. A team of MELS legal observers were present at the protest when police sprayed dozens of people standing with arms linked outside the conference, which is the subject of the class action. MELS documented multiple human rights infringements and has put out a 45 page public report which you can find on their website uh this is this is a good move uh uh and it uh, it's uh aimed at um m- making it possible to actually uh um enact your democratic right to protest so that's looking uh fairly uh um, interesting. And the last piece, very sad news, but uh, it, there's going to be a, um, a wake, really, a vigil uh, on Parliament steps tomorrow at 11am uh, on Sunday, tomorrow, 11am, Parliament steps. Um, it's a uh, the community groups are holding a vigil for Peruvian trans man Rodri, Rodriga Ventosila at 11am this Sunday, 4th of September, at the steps of Parliament House. We are demanding immediate investigation autopsy from the Peruvian government after his brutal death in custody at the hands of Indonesian authorities while honeymooning in Bali with his husband, Sebastian. We are demanding justice and an investigation Due to his suspicious death in custody, we will gather at Parliament as there is no appropriate diplomatic Peruvian embassy or consulate to gather in Melbourne. We will show our solidarity with Seb, the family and the community. Despite being on the other side of the world, we stand together because trans lives matter. Rodri will be remembered. So that gathering, 11am Sunday, tomorrow, Sunday 4th of September on Parliament Steps. You're on 3CR with Annie Solidarity Breakfast. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and as I promised, we're going to have a yarn with Adam Proninti. He's from the Yarrow Resident Collective. This is fascinating stuff because uh, this is local council, this is residents, uh, and uh, there's this uh, the importance of uh, residents uh, not just voting in their local elections, but uh, 
when when push comes to shove, demanding results that actually uh, reflect the uh, needs of the local community. Um, this is an ongoing fight that uh, I suspect is going is really lighting a fire, uh, you know, kindling to a bigger fire. So thanks for talking to me about this. Um, I have been following what's been going on at the Yarra Council and um, it's quite disturbing to think that uh, a Greens-dominated council should have such a bad relationship with their residents. Yeah, we're we're pretty disappointed about that on the whole. Um, the the visuals from from last Tuesday night with with the separation between the executive councillors and the community was uh, not a good look at all, and and I think symbolic of what's going on at the moment. What are the what are the key issues? I mean, I know that um, they've actually put a whole range of things in place to try and reduce the amount of uh, democratic interaction between the residents. Is it about unseemly developments? Is that what's going on? No, this is this was broader than that. So the the actual changes to community participation. Um, there is a couple of good things in there, which is expanding the way that, that they are able to get feedback from the community. But what was most concerning to us is the, the limiting of community participation at meetings. So, for example, reducing community submissions from five minutes to three minutes or two minutes if there's uh, more than 10 or more submissions. The, the other one which we've got a real issue with is requiring people to register 24 hours before to ask a question or or make a submission on an item which there's just no need to to have that in place so it, it seems to be something which is being put in place to to limit the amount of time which the community gets at these meetings and just make it harder to participate whereas we should be making it easier easier to participate and giving people the time that they need to make the points that they do on on items that affect them why did they start doing this? It, <clears throat> I can't speak for them and why they've started doing this, but there seems to have been a trend over the last over the last eighteen to twenty four months, which is one of pushing pushing things into secret meetings. Um, so not necessarily discussing them at council meetings, discussing them internally, having more decisions. Uh, so, for example, the planning changes that were, were made earlier this year is pu- pushing more of the planning decisions and changes into the internal bureaucracy rather than having them at, at council meetings or, or what's called the Planning Decisions Committee. Um, so there's been this, this overall trend to pushing things out of council meetings, which are very public, very transparent, everyone can see what what's happening to where they're happening more and more behind doors. And when did the Residents uh, Action Collective begin? Uh, the Yarra Residents Collective. So we started in 2020. Um, it was out of a myself and a friend of mine started that. Um, it started in relation to, to some very local issues which we were having. Um, we we thought, you know what, there's probably other people in our area who, in our position, didn't quite know who to go to. Um, it was our first time certainly presenting at council meetings. We'd never been involved in council before, so we started the Our Residents Collective. And then out of that, over the last two years, it's just grown out of sight. Um, as we were saying recently to, to, to a group of people, it, it's really one of those things where when it's not necessarily whether somebody agrees with us or not, but... 
but the people that have interacted with us, with it's been a group which they know they can come to when they've got a local issue on their street or something that matters to them, and they're not necessarily getting the the local support from council that that they need. I know that there's been issues around uh, uh, charges around rubbish collection and uh, issues around um, developments that uh, local residents have been unhappy with, that sort of thing. Are there any issues that are particularly stand out? Uh, lots. Um, things around rubbish, rubbish charges and collection, uh, I think it, there's an underlying theme behind all of this, which is there's, a, there, there's what feels like an overall reduction in the service from council. So... So, for example, reducing the recycling from weekly to fortnightly, for example, was was hugely unpopular. Meanwhile, people are also screaming out and saying, hey, where's our green waste collections? Um, in fact, people who previously had green waste bins, actually, some of them have had them removed. So people saying, hang on, we're, we're trying to do the right thing, but you're actually ha halving the amount that, that we can collect recycling. And then at the same time, the the idea of this bin tax seems to rear its ugly head every couple of years. Um, there's also something else which I'd highlight is there's also this trend in, in council at the moment to refer to what every other council does, like we're some outer suburban um, council without any without any reference to the fact that we already pay some of the highest rate or, or our um, ratepayers already pay some of the highest rates in Victoria. Not to mention, we we take a huge amount of uh, fees from from rates such as user fees, charges. They include things such as pet registrations, parking, of course, um, as well as other things. Um, not to mention the recent furor around around the increases in the leisure centre fees for the elderly and for for families with kids going to swimming lessons. Oh goodness, um, the. Is, is this something to do with the change in the composition of the population in Yarra? Because, I mean, Yarra has always been a very progressive council. Um, in our discussion with, with, with councillors, I'm not sure it's been a change in the composition of the population of Yarra, um, but there's certainly been a change in the composition of the council. Um, the... The recent green set that have been elected seem to be very different from the previous ones that have been elected to council. Um, as well as that, have, not having not having the mix which we've had in the past has led to this idea of we're going to tell you what's good for you um, without community consultation. Or, or the community consultation becomes a, a tick in the box. So I don't I don't think the composition of Yarra has changed so much. But I think the attention through a number of what we think are relatively poor decisions has certainly drawn the focus on this council more than any other. Is it a personality issue or is it a ideological issue? I think it comes down to an ideological one rather than rather than something which is personality based. Um, you, you mentioned before around. Um, developments and, and how that might be affected on, might affect certain decisions on council. I think, I think there's also an element of ideology and 
And this is a very academic view of the world, which is very disconnected from the local residents in their streets and what, what their day-to-day challenges are. So, so there's a lot of things which are, are written and said by bureaucrats behind the scenes. And it comes out and says, well, this is what this report says from people that have never lived in the area. We know better than the local residents that live there. Um, whereas that didn't happen so, so much in the past. Um, there was more listening to local residents. But at, at the moment, it's certainly this, no, 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 the local residents are wrong. We're going to tell them what's good for them. And, and of course, that's led to a whole heap of conflict, which is unnecessary. I mean, I, I, if you bring up something like the Collingwood um, Community Gardens, that is an example of... it's. A, so that the council was behind that at all. But that was a whole process of uh, an overlay of academic belief structures undermining a whole community effort that was 40 years in the making. Is there, uh, yes. so, is there something in the air around um, commercialising community or something of that nature? I think, uh, even though the stakeholders are very different because state government had a lot more to play in the in the community gardens issue, I think the same underlying principles are at play at a council level. So I think there is, look, the, the commercialisation of council services, I think, is, is a valid one. Also, don't forget that this is a council which is utterly broke. So it's, it's out of money and... They need to figure out a way to fix their financial situation relatively quickly. But the way they're going about it is sort of quick fixes, which is, hey, we'll jack up the rates on the on the community on this service or that service um, in light of the fact that they can't just increase rates. But to your point, this idea of, of you've got a bureaucrat sitting in the background that does the academic bit on paper that says, well, this makes sense, you kind of can't do that in these very tight-knit local communities. And the tight-knit local communities are sitting there and saying, well, hang on, we're, we're the ones that use that service. Um, you've only got to look at what at what other councils do, and it was supposedly on the agenda for Yarran was pulled around the outsourcing of the aged care services. That's another another great example where all these councils are looking at outsourcing the aged care services, and as I said, it was on the agenda for Yarra. And and you can't go and do that without a great deal of thought and planning because otherwise you're going to get pretty bad outcomes, um, as we've seen elsewhere. Um, looks great on paper, doing it in practice doesn't always look so great. Yeah, yeah, the conflict between a service that should be utterly local as opposed to one that should be neoliberally gutted. Yeah, correct. And And you can talk to, across the political spectrum, um, you can talk to the most sort of right-wing liberal and, and most of them will, will acknowledge and sit there and say, hey, even, even though we think economic rationalism and should be years of haze and all that, there are certain things that you've got to be very careful about. It's a bit like touching Medicare, for example. Everyone acknowledges that it's a good thing and, and you wouldn't go and, and make drastic changes to that all of a sudden. I think the aged care example very much fits into that one where... It's a bit of a silly one just because the federal government changed their funding model that all of a sudden the councils just sit there and go, oh, we want to be rid of this service, so we'll just outsource it, which we know from some of the councils in the eastern suburbs and, and down towards Frankston that it's been a huge issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so 
they've taken this quite um, undemocratic approach to fending off their Bolshi residents. Um, and considering that local governments are actually at the at the pleasure of the state government and the federal governments, that they don't have any genuine legislative existence, as was proven by previous premier. Um, <laughs> it's uh, this battle that's going on locally. Uh, where's it going to go from here? Look, we're not the we're not the only one with this with this problem. Um, we're speaking been speaking to residents in Darabin recently. Um, one, one thing which I would say is the Greens council, the Greens led councils have taken a particularly militant approach to these problems. Um, Darabin have seen that on a on a number of recent issues where the residents have come second to the political agendas. One thing which I which I will highlight is. We really do need local community representatives on council who will represent the community. Um, when we've got politically led representatives who are using it as a as a career stepping stone, we're not getting the best outcomes. So I think I think if we had local representatives that truly did represent the community first, rather than than their own agendas, that would help. Um, in terms of your question of, of where's it, where's it heading can't predict that exactly, but you've only got to look at local government all across Victoria at the moment, and the councils like Yarra are having similar issues, although within Yarra those issues are, are supercharged with the, way that it, with the way that they're going at the moment. Well, the thing about Yarra is that it's a, a, a cornucopia of gold for developers, really, isn't it? Um, they, they certainly do seem to get the preference at the moment. The fact that only in February the current set of councillors voted to make it harder for for residents to object to large developments, and now a number of number of items can go through um, if they hit a certain if they don't hit a certain threshold, and those thresholds have been increased. The the trend recently has certainly been relatively developer friendly, and we also know through talking to a number of local residents groups, and we we're talking to one last night, where where the local councillors are sort of, or some of the local councillors are pushing them to make, to make compromises which they wouldn't otherwise, and say, oh well, you just need to agree so that, so that we, we can get a, an agreement with the developer and go through without having to have these battles. So the residents are certainly feeling like the, the current council is trying to push these through, and and isn't necessarily representing the resident interest in this case, and the developers are benefiting out of that. When is the next council election? Uh, it's two years away at the moment, so we're oh. we're about halfway through the current term. Oh, a bit of a way to go. Um, the the other, but it, but quite clearly, uh, the uh, local residents are ramping up uh, to make it clear to the council that they are um, there's a problem here. Oh, clearly. I mean, we've we've not seen an increase in the in the participation of of the Our Residents Collective recently like this before. Um, the other groups are seeing a similar sort of sentiment. I think people are waking up to what's going on and the fact that their own local interests aren't being represented first. Um, uh, and I think even though we're two years out, I think fundamentally the, the way of addressing this is you've got to make the 
the the elected representatives accountable, and and the only way of doing that is with votes. How did the um, council get so broke? Do you know? Um, it's probably a, a longer story than than just this. It's been a long history of issues, and I think I think there's been a number of band aids over the issues. So so the council had a huge reliant on grants up until now, which aren't necessarily as forthcoming. So it would be a year to year proposition of of fill the shortfall, and and they can no longer just just do that. So rather than making the the structural changes they needed to gradually over over the last 10 or 15 years, it's all of a sudden come to a... Now that the Band-Aids are being ripped off, it's all of a sudden coming on, oh, this issue is actually quite a large one. Mm. I mean, they can divert the issue to a fight over uh, reducing local citizens' involvement in council, but it doesn't take away the fact that they're um, not representing people, the local interests. Yeah, and, and look, that's what our that's what our interests really are is is saying, hey, these councils really need to go back to representing their local residents, and, and particularly Yarra, which we don't think is very good at. And they need to go back to representing the local resident in and in interest first, rather than having staff that don't even necessarily live in the electorate sitting there and saying, well, this is what we think is best. Go back to being truly representative, look after the local libraries, look after local facilities, make sure we're delivering good leisure services to users at a reasonable price. We've got Yarra is possibly the most diverse local government area in Melbourne and we need to, to cater to that. All right. So what's your next move? What are you guys going to do next? Look, we continue to do what we've always done, which is... Um, Number one, shine a light on the issues. So, but but as well as that, anyone that anyone that's got a local issue and and is struggling away and on their street or in their local area, it's somewhere where they can come and and get some help and and find like-minded residents who have who have had issues battling against council. We've had everything from noise issues all the way up to um, council-wide issues such as the bins, where we where we provide support for each other and provide assistance in doing that, whereas their local councillors might not have been necessarily as supportive as they'd hoped. So we'll just we'll just continue doing that. Yeah, I just find it incredible that uh, this uh, they are branded as green councillors and uh, they obviously have different views about how, what that means and the people who voted them in obviously had a completely different view about what that means. <laughs> Well, uh, from our perspective, we think that what happens is that they they don't get voted in on their own individual reputation, but they've been voted in on the party ticket, thinking that they represent one thing. And, and, and the one bit of feedback which we, we do get, much in line with what you've just said, is we voted, we voted for these guys thinking that we we're getting a very progressive, possibly less-leaning council, um, but this is nothing like that. What we're actually getting is in many ways very neoliberal, but more than that, um, it's not actually representing what we thought we were voting in. Mm. And, and, I mean, there's a couple of uh, socialist councillors who must, must must be feeling quite lonely. Uh, yeah, look, uh, in general, we, we don't necessarily agree with 
I think you're referring to Stephen Jolly and Bridget O'Brien there, we don't necessarily agree with everything which they do, but but fundamentally the one thing which you can't argue is that they they do actually represent the local community. They're the ones that are sitting there fighting. You've only got to go and look at any of the recent votes. Those two councils are the ones that are generally fighting against and voting against these really bad ideas. They're voting against the reduction in participation. So it might not be perfect, but I don't think anyone could argue that they're not actually community-led and driven. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me. No worries at all. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. And you're back with Annie on 3CR Saturday Breakfast, Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we're moving on to have a chat with Jay from the Anti-Poverty Centre. G'day, Jay, how are you? Good. How are you going, Annie? Yeah, good. And uh, you, you uh, at the Anti-Poverty Centre, have, have you weren't invited to the Job Summit. No, we certainly were not. We are, we were, we are not a part of the 140 odd elite people that were invited to the room. Um, we were invited uh, to a pre-roundtable meeting with uh, Minister Tony Burke on Tuesday, however, um, to discuss. Uh, you know, barriers to work and that kind of thing. And we were invited along with um, some other stakeholders in the area as well. Yeah, and uh, so you decided you're going to have a an unauthorised picnic outside uh, the uh, uh, Parliament House. How did that go? Yeah, look, uh, so about three weeks ago, uh, myself and uh, some comrades from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union in Canberra we discussed that we were going to hold a small rally. We're going to get some people to come together to say some, a few words out on the lawns of Parliament. Um, and then after that, we're going to have a picnic for everyone and bring some food down and kind of just, you know, group together. Um, so that was three weeks ago, uh, was meant to go ahead. Uh, we put in the paperwork and then on, we're meant to hold it on Thursday, uh, Wednesday at about 4 p.m. Parliamentary services came back to us and said, no, Permit denied, you're not allowed to do it. So we decided, well, buggy uh, we'll wait one more day. And if you don't permit us, we'll just come anyway. Uh, we won't hold the picnic so as to, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, some more, uh, you know, people on payments aren't going to be subjected to arrest or to uh, big fines. So we collected some stories. We went out there yesterday morning. We read them for the media um, and had a couple and politicians come down. So we went ahead anyway. It's interesting it's because it's a very stage-managed affair, the um, Job Summit. Um, this is quite separate from anything that might have positively come out of it. And, you know, uh, as uh, someone said to me, you know, if you don't stop, if you stop talking, then, you know, it's all over. But uh, it very stage-managed. They were very uptight, weren't they? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at some of the, you know, the outcomes that, that the Treasurer put out yesterday, it was very much pre-planned. Um, I think what the the uh, the event was mainly about was to try and signal uh, from the government that it wants to be more of a longer-term uh, government than just, say, a single term. Uh, 
to try and, I suppose, build off the, the hawk imagery of the 1980s uh, and not of the Rudd image <laughs> of total destruction. But from the Anti-Poverty Centre point of view, there were some key uh, issues that were left out. Oh, 100%. Uh, that, the, the event just, just did not deal with the realities of what people are subjected to right now. You know, we've got people starving on, uh, you know, on half the poverty line. We've got people going homeless because rents are soaring and there is no public and housing to, to house people. None of this was addressed. Um, even the brutality that people experience through the employment services that they're required to attend when receiving a payment, none of that was addressed either. So they're not actually looking at the material conditions of which people are subjected to right now. They're just looking at, you know, long-term visionary, uh, you know, hopeful words that they're going to put into a paper that will most likely be shelved. That's funny because uh, talking to the person I was speaking to just before you, um, Adam, from the Yarra Resident Collective, they were actually talking about how the local council uh, uh, appears to be working off uh, academic reports and uh, et cetera, et cetera, but, uh, and be really distant from the experiences of the local residents as they live their lives and what's important to them. Uh, what you're pointing out is something similar, that there's an over-intellectualised uh, rather than empiric understanding of what's going on. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, it, it's quite evident for the longest while that, you know, there's probably some technocrats in Treasury and uh, Department who uh, are asked basically to, you know, just focus on budget measures rather than, you know, actually providing meaningful support to people in the community who desperately need it right now. Um, and, and that's just kind of a running theme that we experience, you know. Uh, unfortunately, we, we have to kind of engage with the department to try and advocate and bring about change. But, you know, it, it feels like we bash our heads against walls because every time that we do, we take, you know, real stories and, you know, do surveys in our own research and provide that it's just like what you're imposing on people right now is bad and it's hurting them and they do nothing about it. And then you go back and they're like, oh, well, no, we read this report and this report says that your report's wrong. So it's not that there's an over-intellectualisation, I guess. It's more so that they favour the advice or evidence um, that ideologically kind of, you know, they believe and support. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, given given uh, a theory that I developed when I was young, which was that most people actually think they're good guys. It doesn't matter, you know, even serial killers probably think that they're good guys. Um, and, and that's not to say people in Treasury uh, fit into that category. I, I hasten to add. But um, <laughs> but uh, uh, there are some specific issues here. And one of them that's uh, really interesting that you guys have pointed out is that the uh, government has just put out that it's going to do a, a Royal Commission into robo-debt, right? But there are... You know, and we go, oh, hooray, hooray, hooray. Or it's actually a little bit, you know, old news, in fact. But um, that's. But 
instead of actually surgically dealing with the issue of the oppression that's going on in relation to debt recovery from Centrelink, uh, it still proceeds, doesn't it? Not robo-debt, but the whole debt collection process. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, you know, it's it's great for all the work that, you know, uh, Not My Debt and Asher Wolf have done to get, uh, you know, robo-debt to this point. Um, and I uh, and not to mention the courageous people who put themselves up as litigants. Oh yeah, definitely, one hundred percent in the um, in the action, uh, legal action. Um, but it's as you pointed out, like unfortunately, the government, I think Bill Shorten has very very cynically seized uh, this grassroots movement of people actually fighting for substantial change, and he's taken it for his own political will in the form of a, a royal commission to kind of ignore the issue of debt through the social security system. And now we know, obviously, the the, the disgusting effects that robo-debt has on people. But what we do know because of that, and just in general, is that debt kills people. And the social security system and its many, uh, you know, whether it's work for the doll, for example, kills people too. But you know what they what they could do right now is basically change certain policy levels like the part income test, um, you know, parental income test as well as another one to prevent people falling into debt um, when they're just trying to live their lives. Uh, the easiest thing that they could do is just do a, a jubilee, sort so to speak, or where they just get rid of all the debt for people who, you know, through no fault of their own, but the policies that exist in the system accrue debt. Um, but they won't because. You know, shortly after the new government came into uh, uh, government, they said that they're going to be ramping up debt collection. Um, so, you know, it's much of much of the same. So, so what they think that uh, there's skivers out there who are trying to chisel um, and uh, milk the Centrelink system? Yeah, look, I mean, that's <laughs> kind of just been the you know the idea since what the the sixties. 70s or whatever that you know there's a bunch of people who are just you know uh, uh, leeches on the system but you know like i think what they need to like ask themselves is who in their right mind would want to be living on half the poverty line and not working yeah who in their right minds yeah exactly like they must have you know some free decent accommodation and you know have uh, untapped resources of food but um you know, it's just it's just disgusting to assume that anybody could live uh, on half the poverty line, and yeah, the the treatment of the people that do is just absolutely abhorrent. Well, it's interesting because if you do do a um, rather than up close and feel the pain, if you move backwards from that you know, image, you find that uh, attacking a um, a slice of society um, like they do in Social Security as an ideological weapon, it is really a stick for keeping low-paid workers in line. Oh, definitely. And, I mean, that's, you know, why they also use work for the doll as well. Like, you know, um, that's that's the threat. It's like either you, you put up with your bad cleaning job or your bad retail job, because if you don't like it, then you're just going to have to do it for free while you get half, while you're on half the poverty line. You know, uh, 
with the, we did um, a survey um, on survey. We got some data from um, Senate estimates at the beginning of the year, and we did a kind of a map of work for the dollar across the country. And you know, there's almost a thousand sites across the continent uh, of where people are doing essentially, you know, forced labour. So you know, that's the weapon that they use. Is like either you put up with your bad conditions, your poorly organised areas, or you're just going to have to suffer like these people are. So it's an ideological um, framework that Australian society is living in, and uh, that's what one of the things that your your organisation, Anti Poverty Centre, is. It's about the representation of people who are in this situation. That's really important uh, for change. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, obviously people like to run around and use the words like lived experience and just kind of drop in a, um, you know, uh, a tokenistic kind of character um, for their panels or their, you know, shows or whatnot. But what we're trying to actually do is to, you know, kind of uh, provide people in the social security system with the ability to be able to advocate not only for themselves, but for everyone in their families or their immediate circles who are also subjected to the same condition. Because obviously, you know, the poor people are generally uh, treated as, you know, stupid or unpowerful by, you know, sometimes both sides of the political divide. But, I, you know, it, it's not the case. It's the, the, the issue here is that structurally these people are oppressed. There's nothing wrong with them mentally or physically, whether they have a disability or whatever else. It's like, no, it's just that they're structurally oppressed and they have the means to do it as long as they're you know, given the power to do so. And so that's what, we, that's what we're working on through our policy advocacy and you know, um, helping people out. Um, one of the things that um, was a good thing, um, uh, but I'd like to hear your view on this, which is the uh, Indu card. What is uh, has that actually been um, uh, dispersed? Yeah, so um, it's currently sitting before the Senate, the bill, um, and it will be uh, as far as we're aware, it will. And so that's the cashless debit card or the injuries that's also referred to by the private company. But just bear in mind, the cashless debit card is only one form of income management program. So in 2007, when the intervention started, uh, it was the <clears throat> they introduced the basics card yep. um, into the Northern Territory. And so that's obviously continued through. And, and so the basics card will continue on um, even after the cashless debit card ends once the bill passes in the Senate. So what we're actually going to see, even though it's good that the cashless debit card is coming to an end in the communities that it's uh, imposed on, will have that relief and be able to go back to managing their own income. What we're going to see in places like the Northern Territory is that people will be pushed back from the cashless debit card onto the basics card. And in a report from the uh, Parliamentary Library... What will happen <clears throat> is that uh, the people, the majority of the people who are going from cashless debit card back to basic card, are you know Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islands people. So what we've what we've seen is more of a concentration back to a race. Well, it has always been racist, but a, even more racist and targeted uh, program. So while it is good that the cashless debit card is ending. Basics card is still mandatory, and that's still in force. And we really, really need a fight 
to make sure that the Labour Party doesn't get away with the fact that they've um, permitted for the basic card to continue. It's so paternalistic. The uh, business about um, uh, interfering intrusively into people's private life uh, and their ability to actually self-determine is actually tied to the fact that they have to have an income that is supplied through Social Security. Uh, it means that, uh, you know, that small, this paltry small amount of money that's just keeping someone alive is almost a removal of their citizens' rights. Yeah, 100%. It's, you know, uh, as Lydia Thorpe pointed out in uh, uh, November 2020 during a Senate debate, uh, that the uh, basics card and cashless debit card is just a modern day rations program. So, you know, it's only really targeted in uh, very remote communities where there is poor access to food, poor housing, poor conditions, over policed. And then on top of that, these, you know, uh, people do not have the means to be able to, you know, spend their money or control their money. And the purpose of it was to apparently prevent crime and various other things. And what we found, what they've found through various studies over a decade now, and many experts and people who have researched it from the get-go have pointed out that it just doesn't work. People work around it. and But also what it means is that it's also having very serious uh, implications like, you know, child birth rates have decreased and school attendance is dropping as, as a part of it. So arguably it's creating more social harm but on top of that, they're not addressing the structural issues that do enable problem drinking and gambling. You know, they don't regulate alcohol as well as they should in our society. You know, you turn on the football and you're exposed to gambling ads or, you know, beer. alcohol. That's or, yeah. the, the beer ad on the side of the wall, I noticed, because I don't watch the footy much, but it was a fairly exciting game last night. And I, <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah, and all around, reading the entire oval is... Uh, is beer, 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 beer. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like there's all these structural issues that are in place, but yet they, they blame the individual. But I think, you know, that's one story, but it is just the fact that it is just wildly racist and it's used to oppress and um, prevent, you know, First Nations communities from being able to self-determine. And that's the purpose of it. Yeah, and, yeah. It, it actually you know. just uh, maintains the status quo, effectively. And it does strike me that uh, when people bleat about uh, domestic abuse, uh, you've got a whole society that's built on the concept of domestic abuse. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, <laughs> what, what, what is a card going to do about that? And, you know, that's the other argument uh, that people like to use. It's like, oh, well, women... Um, won't be able to get out of domestic violence situations if they, you know, have to give their money away to their partner. It's just like, well, that's not, you know, the social security system actually kills women because it pays such a, a low pittance that they can't actually escape uh, and people feel beholden to stay in violent relationships. And we know this, but you refuse to do anything about it. Well, you know, the job summit is um, one thing, which is it's almost like uh, a an arrangement for people who wear suits, and then there's the rest of the world. Exactly. And, I mean, you know, it just goes to show of the people who were invited. You know, you have Andrew Forrest um, from Forresty Medals and, uh, you know, the great nephew of John Forrest, the Premier and Pastoralist, 
Um, you have uh, Sally Sinclair, who's head of the National Employment Services Agency, who uh, is the peak body uh, to oversee, you know, employment services that oppress and brutalise people. Um, and then you had groups like, you know, the Business Council, ACTU and ACOS doing tripartite agreements in order to come together and work towards full employment. Uh, it was, yeah, it was certainly for uh, an elite class uh, and it was not for people who will be subjected to their whim. And, I, and uh, before we finish, I have to say, and in the backgrounds, you have the mainstream media bleating about um, there's too many union members there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I found that absolutely absurd. Um, and, you know, just giving uh, people like Peter Duck the airtime to, uh, you know, go on about the unions. And it's just like, well, I mean, that's the only good thing to come out of it was that in the room you had at least, uh, you know, this secretary of uh, the national uh, RTBU was able to, you know, front up to uh, uh, Dominic, Dominic Perrottet and, you know, give him a piece of his mind for his treatment and threats against, you know, the comrades in Sydney right now. Yeah, no, absolutely interesting, <laughs> I'll have to say. Thanks for talking yeah. to me, Jay. No worries. Thanks for having me. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when confected class infected the body of our society as contagiously as the pandemic that continues to infect our individual bodies. Expressed on behalf of our classless society by the Trublawazi Capitalist Review, fingering the problems posed by this week's Canberra Caring Employers and Lazy Avaricious Workers Share a Common Interest Talkfest, the evil unions that editorialised were dragging Trublawazi's outdated industrial relations system back to the early 20th century class conflict origins. Class struggle. Total anathema to caring employers who know there is no such thing. That if only caring employers and individual workers could sit down and negotiate, they would share what they have in common. The profits of the caring employers trickling down to the lazy avaricious. Expressed again by the Capitalist Review, caring employers could be picked off by a union-dominated summit agenda that is not in the best interests of promoting business-led prosperity, telling us we needed to get back to the liberalisation of the workplace that operated during work choices. Even though we still have, and this bits me, not the Capitalist Review, even though we still now have, no longer work choices just looks like it. And to prove there is no such thing as class struggle, except in the demented minds of evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers, caring employers and their puppets, or sorry, representatives, displayed their commitment to a classless society, like our old mate in us will cost the workers of the Trublawasi Industry Profits Group. Aren't we fortunate to have the benefit of Innes's wise counsel week after week, who said the caring business class associations, the good unions, must avoid working against each other to avoid getting picked off by evil unions? See which bit of that indicates class. None of it. And New South Wales Supremo Dominic Parrott Bossese warned evil unions had hijacked the agenda and that will fail to lift productivity and wages. See, not even a hint of class differences between caring employers and the ingrates they employ. While Hayseed and Cheapshit Party Supremo David Little to be proud of displayed his commitment to a classless society with 
This is where the big hand of the unions have sick, wrong tense, big hand of the unions have decided they're high up on the steps. Now they've got a government that owes them its success because they pay the bill for them to get elected. They now have to pay this back and they're going to pay it back with draconian laws. See, not even a hint of class differences, but the innate evil of a union movement bent on maintaining the myth of class struggle. That there are conflicts between caring employers and their wage slaves, sorry, workers, was expressed in a warning from that great advisor to caring employers and caring business class governments, Herbert Smith Free Kills the Workers, former home of caring business class party shadowy minister for caring business class relations, Michaela cost the workers who would never dream of bringing class into her balanced arguments the great big end of town legal firm which played a key role in drawing up the aforementioned good good no class struggle work choices partner Rowan Doyle real name warned the evil union sector wide bargaining proposal would likely lead to a significant increase in strikes and could force businesses to move offshore, automate more roles, or close altogether. Come on, which bit of that reflects the slightest degree of class difference? Goodness me, doesn't the we're all in this together agenda of these wise troubadours expose the backwardness of the evil union's persistence with class rhetoric? Then, to make matters worse, Talk this morning, we learned the invitation this was hopelessly lopsided, well biased really, also revealing the accuracy and integrity we have come to love in our mainstream media as the capitalist review headlined, Unions dominate meeting at the expense of employers. Trade unions will be punching well above their weight at this week's Jobs and Skills Summit with their official constituting one quarter of the 143 invitees. 35 trade union officials it went on. The first bit of accuracy is there are actually 33, but hell, they're so evil it seems there are more of them. And anyway, that would bring the one quarter back to 23%, not nearly as sexy. And obviously there must be loads fewer caring business class employers who would not be punching above their weight. Loads less than the 33 uh, well, perhaps the Capitalist Review might know all about counting profits, but a lesson in arithmetic wouldn't go astray, as there are 53 caring business class invitees, an infinitesimal 37% compared to the evil union's gargantuan 23%, all of which apparently shows the evil unions punching above their weight and the poor caring employers reeling from the blows. Well, at the expense of employers, as the headline headlined. Thank goodness we can rely on such accurate and honest journalism. Trouble was he was honoured, very fortunate, to host one of the world's greatest fighters for war is peace, US of the UN of the US of the world lover of peace through train killing John Beltham, a former war is peace advisor to former big supremo brackets robbed, Donald Trample the poor among others, who advised Trouble was he we must pour lots and lots more lovely, lovely money into the coppers of the US of merchants of death industry must create more ambitious train-killing, political and economic links across the region to address the tr strategic threat posed by evil China. 
uh, strategic threat, John? Absolutely. It threatens the U.S. armed strategy of controlling the world economy. Oh, how evil. And let me add, it simply makes no sense to have trillions of lovely dollars tied up in merchants of death merchandise and not to use it. I'm a great believer in using all that merchants of death merchandise. I'm a great advocate of not wasting all those lovely dollars. And then after you've used the merchants of death merchandise, you can buy lots more. Win, win. Um, If you're still here. Peace is worth fighting and dying for. Other people fighting and dying, John. Part of a well-structured, classless society. And John says the U.S. of, and presumably with the true blue Aussie as usual in its coattails, can thwart evil China by abandoning the one-China policy, recognizing Taiwan, and establishing a U.S. of train killer base there. Send in the Marines, like it has bases almost everywhere else, preserving peace through train killing. My word, he is on the ball, isn't he? Because establishing a military base in Taiwan to deter evil China should work a treat. Well, from his point of view, it would work a treat. He would enjoy the train killing he so cherishes, as long as other people are doing the kill and be killed bit. Of course, John was one of the so-called neocons who so wisely advised another former U.S. Ob Supremo, George W. Bash, the workers. Indeed, John made the other neocons look like peaceniks. Thanks to him, for instance, just this week, 23 people were killed and 140 injured in clashes between the two factions claiming to be the government of Libya. Exactly. What was evil Libya is now enjoying the benefits of being liberated by the U.S. and our very good friends. Uh, You're very good friends, John. And they continue to be very good friends as long as they do what we tell them. Once again, another of those very good friends, liberty, freedom and democracy love and Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Selmore oil man, displayed why he is a favorite of all who love a little bit of liberty, freedom and democracy like John Beltham and current U.S. Ob Supremo Joe Biden Capital and, well, True Blue Aussie for that matter, and of course, that bastion of democracy and freedom Zion by... Well, there have to be some limits to freedom so liberty, freedom and democracy can flourish. Little limits like it's a capital crime to express opposition to the prince and his extended family of Democrats. A young bloke arrested in 2017 when he was 21 for demonstrating demonstrating what a criminal several years earlier when he was much younger than 21 and a major crime figure arrested in 2014 when he was 19 for the heinous crimes of participating in demonstrations and marches attending funerals for victims of the royal family's policies and wait for it the cruelest and most serious crime of all distributing water during demonstrations For those crimes that after being held in a friendly Saudi jail for all these years, this week both young men were sentenced to death. Doubtless, yet again, the response from the usual liberty, freedom and democracy-loving world will be silence. John might even congratulate Bin Sulmore Oilman for his commitment to law and order and liberty and freedom and democracy. 
and there won't be too many young Saudis demonstrating and marching against the sentences and or committing the capital crime of providing them with water. The pejorative Dan government has come under attack for its unreasonable maintenance of compulsory masks on public transport and on dear little children in their classrooms, defying the sensible capitulation to caring employers' insistence that workers with COVID should go to work and not stay in isolation. With Chamber of Retail Prophet Supremo Paul Guerra, Guerra for War on Silly Restrictions, announcing that 13-year-olds with COVID could go to work because they already have it and therefore couldn't catch it. And they only have to be paid a pittance. Having said that, we are totally opposed to child labour, but everyone knows 13-year-olds' place should be in the workplace and not in a classroom. Which makes a lot of sense. Supporting great caring employers like the airline which used to be our airline's Alan Joystick, who certainly knows it's okay to travel on one of his planes without a mask, if and when you can finally make it onto one of his planes, and great thinkers like our old mate Innes will cost the workers. Yet ignoramuses like the doctors, the AMA, have had the temerity to ask the government to show it the expert advice on which the further lifting of COVID restrictions was based. Thankfully, the health minister agreed to reveal the expert opinion. A poll, Innes, they want our expert advice. Uh, could you give us another copy? Ever generous, Paul and Innes and their sundry chambers of profits agreed, although they questioned what business the lifting of COVID restrictions had to do with the medical profession. And finally, back where we started. Our chief health advisor and caring business class relations expert, Innes, commenting on the class rubbish of the evil unions at the Talkfest, a clear red line for industry is the potential for unions to engage in industrial action in pursuit of multi-party bargaining claims. This has the potential to shut down key parts of our economy. Shame, a disgrace, showing how all this has brought the caring business class and evil unions together so successfully although it would have been even more successful but for the evil unions raising class where class doesn't exist. If but, lazy avarices workers could be satisfied with that yellow liquid trickling down. Good morning.
all the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and touring Australia for the very first time is folk duo Watch House, formerly known as Mandolin Orange. From coffee houses to major festivals, Watch House has played it all with their heavenly harmonies, songs, and music. Watch House play the Melbourne Recital Centre 11th of October with support from the wonderful Charm of Finches. Also playing at Out on the Weekend at Seaworks in Williamstown, 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. Brave men fall with the battle cry. Tears fill the eyes of their loved ones and their brothers. And all. So it went for Joseph Warren. Ripponlea Estate, located in Elston Week, is hosting a pre-loved cookery book sale. It will be held within the original Victorian kitchen and there will be over 400 books, all priced under $20. General property entry applies, which includes a tour of the mansion. The sale will run from the 25th of September to the 28th of September from 10am to 4.30pm. Explore a huge variety of recipe books spanning over many decades and genres. Head to ripandleeestate.com.au for more information. National Trust of Australia is a 3CR supporter. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion When you think of community... Uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Yeah, you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Drug overdoses deaths in Metro Melbourne was at is at a ten year high. And Cohell says that the new coroner's court data showing that five hundred Victorians died of drug overdoses in twenty twenty one is a harsh reminder that there are still many barriers that prevent people from accessing drug services and treatment with drug stigma at the top of the list. Now, you might have noticed that from the 25th to the 31st through the city, there were illuminations on the side of buildings, which were um, the artworks uh, of uh, about 29 participants with lived experience or relatives of people who have been affected by overdose. And uh, it was ended on the 31st of August, because that was International Overdose Awareness Day. And uh, Nick Wallace from Psychedelia at uh, 3CR recorded the speeches. Uh, There were other uh, elements that were uh, uh, heard earlier in the week on, uh, I think it was Thursday breakfast. So if you want to go back and hear more of the voices from that event, uh, you can. But this is the parent speaking at that uh, main stage outside the Parliament House on the 31st of August. 
Overdose, uh, International Overdose Awareness Day is a, a very emotional time for us. Uh, addiction has considerably impacted our family with our lives being changed forever. We tragically lost our beautiful son Aaron. Um, it was an accidental overdose and he will forever remain 26 years young. Uh, only six days after Aaron passed, our family became the face of International Overdose Awareness Day in the media. So strange as... Uh, for nearly a decade before this, we hid behind the fear and the guilt of stigma of addiction and the dark shame of believing our parenting had failed our beautiful son. Parents already experience a high level of guilt, remorse and self-blame when they desperately deal with their child's addiction. And Aaron wasn't without the best loving intentions and protective factors in place, but we were not immune and addiction found its way to our door. Addiction didn't care that our sole purpose as parents was for our child to live a meaningful and peaceful life. Addiction didn't discriminate. It still feels foreign to stand here today and tell you a story that we once kept a secret, as there are times that we still feel the burden of stigma around an overdose death. But like every fallen warrior, Aaron's life represented so much more than addiction, and that's why I'm here. I no longer believe I have the right to hide behind this stigma because if telling our story helps make the difference in the lives of others, then I'm honouring my beautiful boy. And if it prevents other families experiencing this immense pain, then this is going to help. Uh, I need to overcome my fears to do that. Drug laws, discrimination, stigma, guilt and shame are some of the barriers that profoundly hindered Aaron's ability to live a meaningful life and made his life dangerous. They prevented both Aaron and our family from seeking support. Aaron loathed his addiction and fought fiercely for sobriety, but his trauma and PTSD would continue to set him back. It's very common that, his addiction, that addiction is an underlying symptom of significant trauma. Just like insulin for diabetes, his drug of choice was used so he could live another day and cope with his trauma whilst he desperately tried to meet the demands of life. Although maladaptive, a maladaptive coping mechanism, it kept him alive and it would have continued to do so if the law promoted a shift from exclusion and blame toward one of support and compassion. Exclusion prevented Aaron from seeking help and forced him to use his drugs secretly, which brought about serious negative experiences associated with drug use and further impacted his trauma and mental health. It was years ago that I learned from my son, who was an advocate for drug policy way back then. He was wise beyond his years. And with his degree and his lived experience, he would have done great work in this space. He knew that addiction was treatable with a public health response. And with enthusiasm, he spoke of different countries such as Portugal, the Netherlands, Germany. And he expressed the concept of a health response as an amazing opportunity to allow someone to seek treatment for their problematic substance use. Rather than their addiction being viewed as a result of a moral failure or criminal behaviour. Aaron believed the punishment of ineffective criminal sanctions only further traumatised people. I didn't fully understand this concept at the time. I was just in fear. I was frozen with fear. 
But since becoming informed, I now feel deeply saddened that my son was not afforded this opportunity. My son wanted to live. He chose to fight fiercely for his existence every day. I reflect on his journey and I just shake my head. Disbelief. I wonder how he did it. Time and time again, he booked himself into detoxes, rehabs, trauma counselling. He'd be open to try any strategy that was suggested to help. This went on for nearly a decade. I can only imagine how much courage and strength it took to fight his addiction, not to mention the determination it required to navigate systems and services and to only experience the many limitations. Think twice when labelling substance user as weak. As my son was far from weak, he was a true warrior. In the face of adversity, he fought and he fought like hell. Aaron's tragic passing has left me with all the what-ifs and the questions and the scenarios hijacked me in the depths of my grief. What if drug use was legal and our family were afforded the opportunity to have a conversation in those early days? Aaron would come to us freely without fear and shame and openly express concerns that his use was becoming problematic. I fantasise how this simple conversation could have changed his tragic outcome. What if addiction was integrated into our general healthcare system and Aaron was treated with the same commitment and respect that other chronic physical and mental health conditions are addressed? And then what if his drug of choice was legalised to make it safer for him with far less risk to his life? As legalised drugs are safer, right? Then, instead of our media continuing to, continuing to instill moral fear about drug use, along with those people who are misinformed for whatever reason, what if they stopped their judgment and adopted an understanding of addiction as a health issue? Would this have meant Aaron would have been met with compassion instead of feeling shame and experiencing stigma? Regrettably, this fantasy is not looking through rose-coloured glasses. It could have been a reality as the solutions have always been at the government's disposal. The torment, torment of never knowing the answers to any of these questions is difficult, but I hope with all of my heart that one day soon other families are afforded the solutions as there is no doubt in my mind there was an excellent chance they could have saved my son's life. I'm yet to learn the current overdose numbers and statistics. <sighs> and if this was the road toll uh, representation uh, of this instalment of shoes, then this would be covered in shoes. However, uh, the, the overdose pandemic has taken more Australian lives than the road toll since 2014. Preventable overdose deaths have continued to outnumber the road toll. How can that be that we don't actually have a national overdose prevention strategy? It's been recommended for years and it's fallen by the wayside. However, we have a national road safety strategy. We have education, funding for education on road safety. Where is our funding for education on... Where is our funding? Where is our funding for our future generations? The billions of dollars from the economic costs of overdose death will never adequately convey the human cost of a fatal overdose.
Essential harm minimisation strategies such as the, the injecting rooms not only save countless lives. So let's not think about where we're going to put the second one. Just put it in. The quote of the very wise Mr Robert Richter, QC Robert Richter, is never so true. He said, uh, injecting rooms were never intended to be a solution for the drug issue. Their purpose is to keep people alive while politicians spend the next 50 years discovering there are no silver bullets on an unwinnable war on drugs. For many decades before my son, the war on drugs has proven not to work. And without urgent law reform, systemic change and a humane approach, it will be long after my time that the situation will continue to remain dismal. And that would be a tragedy. Losing our son to overdose initially sent me on an angry rampage, knowing his death was preventable. I decided his death could not be in vain. I wrote to politicians, met with the Victorian Premier and I had an agenda to attack our health, broken health system. However, quickly I realised I was only the power of one and that my approach was not effective. What I really wanted was for the policy makers to listen to the impact and the heartbreak that overdose has on families and the wider community. I want to convey my message that every day that we fail to make change, more Australians will die unnecessarily. Every life is precious and every death is someone's loved one. Although my anger has considerably softened, my grief remains overwhelming. And because I know there are solutions to prevent overdose deaths, I have a burning desire to protect others from experiencing and feeling our living nightmare. So please don't let this exercise be tokenistic on International Overdose Awareness Day. Please listen. Please listen to the pleads of family like, families like ours. We have to live every day with this nightmare, this tragedy, and this preventable tragedy. So the countless broken hearts of those who have lost a loved one from overdose, they'll forever grieve for their existence, but also for their lost future and the loss of their generations yet to come. It has been my pleasure to collaborate and work alongside many like other minded people, those with big hearts who work tirelessly and passionately to effect positive change, to reduce drug related harms, and to save precious lives. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. And that's the end of the program today. Uh, today we uh, spoke to uh, Adam Prominti from the Yarra Resident Collective to find out what's going on down in uh, Yarra, uh, local council, local councils that at the uh, nub of. Uh, everyday lives and uh, residents pushing back. It seems to be a, a theme uh, as services are being uh, reduced and uh, costs are rising. Something has to give. Uh, we followed that up with a chat with Jay from the Anti-Poverty Centre. They weren't invited to the uh, 
Jobs Summit and they had quite a lot of things to say about uh, the underpinning of inequality in our social service system, uh, an attitudinal thing. Australia needs to grow up. Uh, this is the week that was m- a great deal of apologies for interfering with uh, our wonderful Kevin Healy's piece. But uh, as I said, if you want to catch up with the tiny bit at the end, go to our podcast. And we have just listened to an incredibly powerful speech from a parent who was standing on the stage for her dead son uh, on Parliament steps on International Overdose Awareness Week, uh, a day, it was the 31st of August. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. But before we do, I'll remind you that there is going to be a vigil on Parliament Steps on Sunday, tomorrow at 11am. Anti-trans discrimination torture death is the heading of the piece that, uh, that was uh, sent to 3CR. Uh Community groups are holding a vigil for Peruvian trans man Rodri, uh, uh, Rodrigo Ventosila at 11am this Sunday, 4th of September, at the steps of the Parliament House and are demanding immediate investigation or topsy from the Peruvian government after his brutal death in custody at the hands of Indonesian authorities while honeymooning in Bali with his husband, Sebastian. We are demanding justice and an investigation due to his suspicious death in custody. We will gather at Parliament in Victoria as there is no appropriate diplomatic Peruvian embassy or consulate to gather in Melbourne. We will show our solidarity with Seb, the family and the community despite being on the other side of the world. We stand together because trans lives matter. Roddy will be remembered. If you are attending, please arrive at 11am, bring flowers and candles with batteries because wax candles are prohibited at Parliament. If you want more information, they say you should visit Instagram at K-I-D-O-T-K-I, K-I-D-O-T-K-I. Um, very sad, very sad news at um, that passing and uh, that that uh, anti-trans discrimination continues in force. So 11am on the steps of Parliament tomorrow. Uh, That's it. We're going to go out with Mia Dyson, Make a Stand. Oh, oh, oh. 
much hate there is, that much woe. That time here has been stolen by cruel, bloodless hands from listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.